Well, I'm about to put some things up on the screen. Uh, I'm going to do them one at a time. And then at the end of them, at the end of the five, I want you to tell me what they have in common. So, Lockie, first one. Wuthering Heights. Second one. Anne Corinna. Romeo and Juliet. Casablanca. Midsummer's Night's Dream. Who can tell me what these five have... Oh, Lachlan! Don't give it away. Can anyone pick it without seeing what was up there? Jaden. Mate, good work. That's right. They are. They're all stories about love. And if Lachlan goes the next one... They're the five top love stories at the New York Library. They're the five top love stories of all time. I thought they might have had Marley and Me or something in there or uh, the Titanic. But no, Wuthering Heights is number one. I don't think I've ever read it. I might have to read it. How's that for you? Some people are saying, what is it? Uh, but how's that? Five greatest love stories of all time. Uh, they're all stories about where some sort of someone's come in contact with somebody else. There's been love, it's been great, it's been passion, it's been good. But then in other times, there's been times when it looks like it's going to be destroyed, it's going to be ruined, things are not going to work. That passion, that hope, that desperation, that sense of something going to go great, but then falls, but then becomes great again. Well, can I tell you that they are great love stories, but the greatest love story of all time is in the Bible. The love story of God and us, or God and humans. And today we're going to be looking at a second chapter of Jeremiah. Those that were here last week, let me just uh, pull that together for you, because uh, the second chapter of Jeremiah is almost like a divorce paper for God and his favourite people at that time, Israel. Jeremiah is written by a guy called Jeremiah around about 620 BC to about 587 BC over a 40-year period. So it's one of the longest books in the Bible and that's probably why because it's over a 40-year period. It takes a while to get all that out. And it is a part of God's great love story with his people. Uh, At this point in time, it's not looking good though. Uh, The love story at this stage is going through the downhill part of the love story. And as I said before, the passage that we're going to be reading today is almost set out like a legal document in one way of almost like a divorce paper about the things that Israel have done wrong to God and God's pain within that. Uh, So we're going to have a look at that in just a moment. And uh, Tom's going to come up there, one of the family members of the Thompson family. And he's going to read that for us. Uh, He's going to read it and it's going to be up on the screen for you. And uh, we thought it'd be good. They asked, the family asked if they'd like to be able to read, and I thought that'd be great on their reunion to be able to come and read. So Tom's going to come up and read it for us. It's Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 1 through to 13. That'd be great. Thanks, Tom. Firstly, thank you uh, for the privilege of allowing our family to do this. Jeremiah 2, verses 1 to 13. The word of the Lord came to me. Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me, and followed me through the desert, through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord. 
The first fruits of his harvest, all were devoured. All who devoured her were held guilty, and disaster overtook them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, all you clans of the house of Israel. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your fathers find in me, that you strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. They did not ask, where is the Lord? Who brought us up out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness, through a land of deserts and rifts, a land of drought and darkness, a land where no one travels and no one lives? I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce, but you came and defiled my land and made my inheritance detestable. The priests did not ask, where is the Lord? Those who deal with the Lord did not know me. The leaders rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal, following worthless idols. Therefore, I bring charges against you again, declares the Lord, and I will bring charges against your children's children. Cross over to the coasts of Kittim and look, Send to Kedar and observe closely. See if there has ever been anything like this. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they are not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glory for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, O heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. Uh, Did you notice it? Did you see the movement uh, in that passage? We'll look at it a little bit closer now and just see if we can pick it up. But there's a movement of how their love began, then how it went on a downhill track. What we're going to do now is look through that together and then see what we can learn from that and in our relationship with God as well. So have a look at verse 2. If you've got your Bibles open, that'd be great. If not, you'll see it go up on the screen. Verse 2 says this, I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the desert, through the land not sown. One of the privileges I have of being a minister is that I get to conduct weddings for people. And when I conduct weddings for people, we, I take them through a pre-marriage course called Prepare. And part of that is they go through and answer all these questions. They tick all these boxes and cross all these things and they don't have to write an essay on each other, but they have to answer about 160 questions on each other. Uh, yeah, it's a lot, John, isn't it? It's a huge amount. Um, but in that, there's one thing that comes out is before you read the results that they give back, they give you this little thing that says idealistic distortion. What they do is they go through all the questions and they look at seeing whether the couple have a too high idealistic expectation of their relationship or too low. Now, in my 13 years of doing weddings, I haven't found anyone who's had too low. They're all up here. They're all extremely high. They're almost off the radar because when they're in that stage, aren't they, their love is just glowing. They just can't help it they just want to be with one another all the time they want to be there they want to do everything they want to go everywhere and they just think everything's wonderful about the person that they're going to be marrying little do they know but 
the idealistic distortion says, well, you need to bring them back a little bit from that to a degree. But in one sense, it's beautiful, isn't it? That sense of wanting to be around that person, wanting to love them, wanting to care for them, wanting to be with them. And that's the picture that God gives here of God and his people. That when God created humans and was first with them, then they wanted to be with one another. When Israel was first the nation that God brought up and uh, took out of the other nations together to be his people, they wanted to be with him. That's what it says there in verse 2. They wanted to go everywhere. They wanted to follow God. They wanted to do the things that God desired them to do. And he remembers that. And in this first passage, you can feel the passion of God for his people, can't you? You used to desire me. You used to be wanted to be around me. You used to want to follow me. You used to want to go the places that I wanted to take you. Can you remember the first time when you believed in Jesus? Can you remember a time when you felt really close to him? That excitement, that exhilaration, that desire to tell everyone else about how good he is. It's exciting, isn't it, about being on the edge, taking risks for Jesus, getting out there and living for him in everything that you're doing, following him no matter the cost because you were in love with him. God loves that. That's what he's saying in his first couple of verses. God loves that. He loved that in the Israelites and he loves that in you. And he's distraught when it's lost. He's distraught when he's lost in the Israelites and he's distraught when it's lost in you as well. Look at verse 5. You won't see this one on the screen. It says this. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your fathers find in me? God says to them, he says, this is what you were like, but now you've lost this passion that you had. What fault did you find in me, says God? And the answer is none. They can't find fault in God. You see, in this love story, in this breakup that seems to be happening around us, there's not two sides. There's not one side where one's gone off and done the bad thing and the other one may have been part of that or implicit in it in some way or caused it in some way. No, this one has gone off, but God has stayed true. He's kept his promises. He's kept his covenant and the Israelites, God's people, have left him. And gone away. And they've done a lot. Their rap sheet is huge. And the whole book of Jeremiah is almost a rap sheet for the people of Israel. But in this passage here, it's almost a summary of everything that goes on. And I'm just going to pick out three things for you this morning that I can see that God says they've done wrong. And then think about ourselves in our relationship with God as well. Well, look at verses 6 and 7. You will see this on the screen. That'll go up. It says this. They did not ask, where is the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness, through a land of deserts and rifts, a land of drought and darkness, a land where there no one travels and no one lives. I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce, but you came and defiled my land and made my inheritance detestable. You see, God says they've forgotten all that God has done for them. They've forgotten that they took them out of slavery, out of Egypt, and freed them. Can you remember the story of Moses and Pharaoh and the ten plagues? Or maybe you've seen the film The Prince of Egypt, 
that was put out a year or two ago. Well, that's a story that God's telling them to remember that they'd forgotten. God had taken them from a situation where they were slaves and downtrodden and took them out of there and made them into a great nation and placed them in a promised land and said, now I will be your God and you will be my people. This is the way it should be. From slavery to freedom. But they'd forgotten. I'm not too sure whether it was because they had a bad memory but because it was pride. But suddenly things, they have become a great nation, things, they have got a great land, do we need God anymore? Pride had taken over. Have you forgotten how you've been rescued from slavery, from the slavery of sin? You see, on the cross, Jesus takes all our sin upon himself and it's nailed to the cross and he cries out, it is finished. All that we have been done wrong in our lives from the time we're born to the time we die has been taken by him on the cross for us so that we can be free to love him forever so that we can be free to experience his love forever. Has your pride taken over thinking that you can live without Jesus? that we can do all things in our strength and not his, that we put our faith in the God of pleasure or comfort or materialism rather in the God of all eternity. It's a good thing for us to think about, isn't it? Well, that's the first thing I think they've done wrong, that God says, and they've forgotten how God has taken them from slavery to freedom. And the second thing he says to them is that the people who are in authority over them have let them down. If you look there, it says here it's the priests, the religious teachers, they've gone off track. The, the priests, the guys that were supposed to teach them about God, aren't teaching them about God anymore. The scholars who were supposed to be able to research stuff and make sure they knew things have started to say, well, oh, let's leave God out of the picture and let's just do it our way and how what we think about things. You know, truth's fluid. You, you could make it up yourself how you want. Or the rulers, they're ignoring God's rules. They're setting up laws themselves that are completely opposite to God. Justice for the poor has been lost. Protection for the vulnerable is non-existent. Or the prophets who were supposed to bring God's words to the people were just bringing their own. Well, this is what I think life's about. I'm going to tell you how I think you should live life and taking on other religious beliefs from around the area, from all the different people around them. They've pulled it together, made it into one ball and said, okay, guys, take a little bit of everything. And God says, no, you've left me out of the picture. You need to be drawing people back to me. Sounds a bit like today, doesn't it, in some ways? Oh, there's a whole lot of gods out there. Pick and choose a little bit that you like of everything, you know, just anything you like. Oh, truth. What is truth? You can't have truth anymore. We're in a postmodern society. It's relativism. That's what it's all about these days. God says, no, you need to come back to me. And then thirdly, he says, you've forgotten the source of your soul satisfaction, guys. I think this is where it wraps up and brings it all together. Look at verse 13. 
My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Just imagine you're on uh, holidays and you've gone to the snowy mountains and you've done a huge hike. It's been a great day, uh, but after you've done the hike, you're coming down the hill and you've been exhausted and it's, it's been really warm that day. It's not in the winter, it's hot. And you get to the end of it, and all I need is a drink of water. And as you get to the bottom of your hike, you see there's a big fridge. And in that big fridge is crystal clear spring water, all bottled up for you, all ready to go. And you grab it and you open it and go, oh, that's fantastic. And you take a drink and you oh, how good is that? That's wonderful. And then as you're drinking that, then you look and you see another guy coming down the hill with his mobile phone going off. No. And he's coming down the hill. And uh, as he's walking down the hill, he looks more tired than you. He looks more exhausted than you. And you're waiting for him to come across to the fridge. But he doesn't come across the fridge. He dives into a pond that's on the side of the road. It's a fish pond. You walk straight past it. But he dives into the fish pond and he just tries to get as much water into his mouth as he possibly can. When you walk past that fish pond, you know that goldfish in it and grime and scrunch it's been sitting it's stagnant but this guy's drinking this water and so you walk across to you and say hey mate what about this crystal clear water you've got over here why don't you take that he says no 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 this was easier this was quicker and look the sign behind the thing he says drink as much as you like you think he's missed it He's missed that crystal clear, sparkling water that would satisfy him. And that's what God is saying to the people here and that's what God is saying to you and I this morning. Have we built our own systems? Have we tried to get, rather than getting a, a pure water system with crystal clear water off pure, beautiful big tank, have we tried to make our own tank out of clay and mud and mire and it's leaking? That's what God's saying to these people is what they've done is they've pushed him to the side and they've gone after the pond water, the dirty stuff, when what they need to do is drink deep of him. You see, nothing else satisfies apart from him. And when we get into the New Testament, we find out that that water, that living water, flows out of Jesus to us. In John chapter 7, verse 37 to 39, it goes up on the screen there, I think. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit. And if you can remember the Samaritan story, uh, when Jesus meets a Samaritan woman, she, said, she says, I want that living water. And he says, it's not in that well, it's in me. Come to drink from me and springs of living water will flow from you. That soul-satisfying, thirst-quenching that lasts not only now but for eternity is found in Jesus. That thirst that we have for eternity, that thirst for life, that thirst for forgiveness, that thirst for meaning, our thirst for significance, our thirst for acceptance, our thirst for purpose, our thirst for unconditional love is found in Jesus. The thirst of our soul is found in him. 
having a living, loving, growing relationship with God through Jesus. And we will only truly be satisfied in this world when we find our complete satisfaction in Jesus. When we drink from him, that never-ending stream of living water and not from the pond that seems so attractive. And how easy is it to get caught in that pond? How easy is it just to think, well, it is a bit easier, it's not as far to walk and it's just there. I can take a bit of that. We get caught in that pond, I think, many times. We think that our satisfaction, our soul satisfaction is going to be wrapped up in someone else, a person, a husband or a wife or that new boyfriend or that new girlfriend, that new relationship that I might have. Now, they can be good, but I can tell you they'll never satisfy you completely because they'll let you down at some point in time. What about stuff? Things. Don't we get caught in that, don't we? Think if I can just have that little bit more stuff, if I can just keep going with that stuff, I'll think about God a little bit later, as soon as I've got that extra bit of stuff. Do you know what the two most toured houses in America are? Probably guess one of them. Oh, you've gone to the second one. What's the first one? The White House, that's right. And the second one is Graceland's. It's Elvis' house in Memphis. And the reason why I think it's the case is not just because Elvis was there, but it's just full of stuff. Everything you could possibly imagine that he could have bought when Elvis was around is in his house. And it's all around the place. But, you know, 50 metres from his house is a gravestone. And he's dead. He died of an overdose of drugs, obese and angry at the world. This is a quote that he said very near the end of his life. He said, I would give a million dollars for just one day of peace. Tells you a lot, doesn't it? Stuff doesn't satisfy. Only Jesus does. Well, what about accomplishments, you know? What about if I can get a, 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 a job or I can build up a business so that it can have my name on it and I can say, that's all mine, oh, I did that. Or what about if I get a high-powered job or I can get that promotion? What about accomplishments? Will that work? Well, let me tell you a story. There's a, a guy who was a pilot uh, of a passenger jet and as he was flying over this river in the area that he grew up in, he could look down and he saw that river and he said to his co-pilot, he says, when I was a child, I used to look up to those planes and say, one day I'll be flying one of those planes. And now I'm sitting here in this cockpit flying a plane saying, oh, I wish one day I'd be down there fishing. It's true, isn't it? So often we think if we can get that, we'll be right. But the only satisfying thing will be when we drink long in Jesus. There's a whole lot of other things we could think about being ponds and Jeremiah goes into a whole lot of stuff over the next couple of weeks and he takes it from not just being ponds but being idols, things that we put our complete trust in. But the key that Jeremiah says to the people of Israel here and what he says to you and I this morning, he says, drink from me, not broken systems. Drink from Jesus, not the fish ponds in life. 
The only way that we'll ultimately be satisfied, not only now, but for eternity, will be when we know and trust and drink deep of Jesus. You see, he is to be our love story. God's love story for you and me is that we don't go off to the fish ponds, but that we drink long of him. We drink eternally of him and his son, Jesus. Let's pray that we do that. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we uh, just think through that passage of Jeremiah and as we think, as we feel the pain that God's feeling of people who've left him, forgotten him, moved away from him, Lord, we know that he has the same pain for us when we move away from him too. Heavenly Father, this morning we pray that we may give our lives back to you, that we may put our trust back in you, that uh, you are the only one who satisfies. You're the only one who can draw us to yourself because of Jesus, Lord. Through his life, death and resurrection, Lord, we have a relationship with you that will last not only now but into eternity, a life that will give us satisfaction here now and satisfaction for eternity. Heavenly Father, we pray that we may drink of that and not get caught drinking from fish ponds. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.